Nachyomi for the Orthodox Union, Sefer Shoftim, the Book of Judges, Perak Dalid, Chapter 4, Rabbi Bini Marilis. In Chapter 4, we are introduced to a very unique character amongst the judges, amongst the Shoftim, that in the person of Devorah. Unique for very obvious reasons, she's the singular female in the list of the Shoftim. Also, by virtue of the fact that in the fifth parak, in the fifth chapter, we get the Shirat Devorah, Devorah's song after her, her battle. She's unique in many, many ways. Very special in many ways. And in the course of our discussions, we'll see some of those unique characters coming out of the text. And significantly as well is the presence of another very powerful female at the end of the chapter in the person of Yael. The varying significances of their of their presence, of their impact, are worthy of a much larger discussion, perhaps with respect to famous female characters in Tanakh. At the same time, with respect to Devorah's place amongst the, the prophets, amongst the Nevi'im, and where she sits and what exactly her relationship and her role is to Klai Yisrael and to, to God as well. Let's begin. Verse 1. As we begin to read here, again, we are in the midst of another cycle of uh, tragedy, perhaps at this point for those learning together, perhaps madness on our part to see the insanity of the repetitive process over the course of the years. Remind you that this has taken place over a very long period of time and that there's been a great, perhaps, discrepancy a great uh, divide between the last cycle and the current cycle. doesn't necessarily excuse it, but it's not that it happens 10 days apart, but rather say, you know, this is 80 years. Keep in mind that um, Ehud had kept quiet in the land for 80 years. Nonetheless, Vayosifu, the first word is that it's an addition on to the raw that was already being done. And that here, the way the text reads, is that Ve'ehud Meis, the Dasofim writes, perhaps, in his explanation, perhaps it is that Ehud dies um, after the Ra has already begun, and that in his waning years, and in the years of Shamgar, they're not completely successful, per se, um, for all of their time in keeping the Jewish people on the straight and narrow on the path of Torah Mitzvahs. So here it is again. The Jewish people are are at it again. They are involved in behavior unbecoming of their status and title. And they're about to be hit again, this time by a new slash old enemy. We hear about Yavin. Yavin, we're about to learn somebody we've seen before and somebody we've mentioned before back in the Sefer Yeshua. We've learned about his city and his location. And we're going to learn about his great general and the manner of his impact 
uh, on the Jewish people. Verse 2. God sells out the Jewish people this time to Yavin, Melech Kenan, a Kenani or Canaanite king named Yavin, who was the king in a place called Chatzor. Chatzor, remember, is a city to the north of the Yam Kinneret that essentially falls in the land of Naphtali and was a city of import in the north that Yahushua specifically burned as opposed to the other cities that Yahushua perhaps leaves standing Chatzor was specifically pointed out and focused on and targeted for destruction and burning but perhaps it is that Yavin is reestablishing his kingdom in Chatzor the Dasofrim understands it that way that this is so many years after Sefer Yehoshua that perhaps these people have returned to Chatzor and reestablished it and rebuilt it and they renamed their king Yavin the king of Chatzor in the same way that you would have Paro Melech Mitzrayim as, as Pharaoh the king of Egypt as a title so Yavin is that title for their kings or perhaps it's either that Yavin or a descendant of that Yavin who has in fact moved to a new location, which we'll hear about in a moment. But that at one point, since the text says a Shemalach, that he did reign, that in the past he reigned at Chatzor, and now he doesn't. So we have this Kenani king, and we'll see the manner in which they are uh, involved with the Jewish people. But he not only is the king, but he has someone else very important who's related to and connected to him, in the person of a general, Sisra. And his leader of the army is a man named Sisra. Hagoyim. And he sits in a place called Haroshas Hagoyim. The strength, the strong place of the Goyim. It would seem that Sisra is the one in Haroshas Hagoyim. And we'll explain where that is in a moment. But perhaps it means that Yavin, the king, is in fact in this place called Kharoshas Hagoyim. Either way, it seems to work out. Kharoshas Hagoyim as a location in terms of the map, Kharoshas Hagoyim is in an area what you would call near modern day Haifa slash Akko. It's on what's called the River Kishon, the Nachal Kishon, and it exists well to the west of Chatzor. Well to the southwest of Chatzor. So perhaps that's where Yavin moves to, and perhaps that's simply where his army general, Sisra, is located. Either way, This is who the enemy is. Now, what's the manner in which they deal with the Jewish people? The Jewish people will cry out to God. It's different than Vayizaku, which we saw before. Perhaps this is a much more pained and, 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 a, and a more severe type of crying out to God. Why are they crying out to God? First, First of all, he's very powerful. He has chariots, 900 chariots 
and and he hits at the Jewish people, we'll explain what that is in a moment, with strength, and it's for 20 years. It's the longest period of lachatz, the longest period of what you would call shibud, of some sort of a servitude um, that exists. Now what exactly does it mean lachatz? So lachatz here is, means as follows. It's also from rights. The lachats, the idea here, is not that they put them to tax, or that they put the Jewish people in some sort of a servitude, but rather it was sort of um, an indignity. It was a diminishment of the value of the people, the honor and the, the sanctity of the populace that's known as the Jews that lived in their region. What that perhaps then means the Dasofim writes, is that they made it impossible for the Jewish people to live normal lives. Perhaps that they were setting up uh, ambushes and highwaymen on the roads, um, that they were simply putting the people down, diminishing their impact, diminishing their value um, on in the, in the location and on the property for a long time, 20 years. And then finally, we meet up with a very special person, the person of Devorah. And in our meeting her in verse Dalid, in verse 4, we get very specific details about uh, who she is and where she is and how she judges and how she leads before we get into the specifics of her role in this story. And Devorah is special. We don't see in other texts with respect to the Shoftim that they're called Nevi'im. They have some form of a spirit of God resting upon them. Some power is given them. Certainly there is Hashkacha Pratis, divine providence at a very high level relating to them in their wars and in their battles. But the language of a Navi is not specifically used with respect to them. And immediately, immediately, we find out about Devorah that she is a prophet. Verse 4. Devorah Ishanivia, and Devorah is a prophetess, a female prophet. Eshes Lapidos, the wife or the woman of Lapidos. That's understood in a variety of ways. One, perhaps, is the way Rashi understands it. Shahaisa Osa Psilos Lamikdash that uh, Lapid would be written to, to the term Lapid, the Lapidos would be with respect to flames um, based on the t- notion of Lapid being related to fire that she, in her business was a, um, she made wicks for the Mikdash, it's a very high and a very holy task, to making the wicks for the for the, for the menorah in the Mikdash and perhaps it's Aishas Lapidos as others understand it that she's the wife of somebody named Lapidos. Either way, however one wants to take it, he's Shofta Es Yisrael Be'esahi. And she judges the Jewish people at that time. It's also possible, worthy of note, that the person who we're going to meet next, Barak ben Avinoam, um, is in fact this Lapidos individual that we're speaking of, and then, in fact, the, the, that there's sort of a partnership at play here in our chapter, beyond simply being 
prophet and uh, general, but rather husband and wife at the same time. Certainly makes uh, for an interesting aspect of the story. So she is judging the Jewish people. Now, how is it that she's judging? It does not appear, as we're about to find out, that she is actively pursuing the people to judge them. But rather, she is judging the Jewish people that her job is is a spiritual role of, uh, of leading in the Jewish community. And that she sort of forms as a conscience that exists for the Jewish people in these moments. Yosheves in verse 5, she's sitting under uh, a tree called the Tomer Devor. That's the way we understand it. She says that she had uh, date palms, she had trees, and they exist in an area between Ramah and Beit El on Harifrayim. And the people would go to her. Looking at a map, so where is this? If you look at a map of the tribe of Binyamin leading into Hare Ephraim and ultimately into the tribe of Ephraim, so you have sort of a straight line that runs Yerushalayim to a place called Haramah to Beit El. So between Beit El and Haramah in modern day land is a place called Ramallah um, and an area that's essentially due west of Yericho would be the vicinity within which you have Tomer Devora, the place where Devora is sitting. And the people were coming to her. They were seeking out her wisdom. They're seeking out her advice. They're seeking out her insights. They're seeking out her spirituality, her righteousness, her holiness. And she's judging the people. And now we get to the heart of the matter as it relates to our story, her role and her relationship with Barak in vis-a-vis the war with Yavin Melech and specifically then also with Sisra. We have this setup of this woman who is incredibly important, incredibly special, incredibly holy for the Jewish people. And she is a Jewish woman. That is to say that she keeps Torah and Mitzvot. The Dasofim writes that it seems to him that she's a Chachama. She's a, a, a giant, a, a, a giant in Torah, and that she knows she knows her material, that she is knowledgeable and wise and insightful. And they're coming to her for her advice. She sits under a tree. She's in a public forum, in a public location. And she is offering her wisdom and offering her insights and affecting and impacting the larger Jewish community by, and from a location of sitting under a tree, although she does become more active. And now, verse 6, And she sends and she calls to Barak ben Avinoam from Kedesh Naftali. Kedesh Naftali is way, way to the north. Kedesh Naftali 
is north of Chatzor, in what's called the Galilee, on the Upper Galilee in English, and that's where he is. So if you look, if you're thinking of the map, she's in central Israel, and Barak ben Avinoam is either from Kedesh Naftali or he is in Kedesh Naftali, which is way up in the north of Naftali, northern Israel. But Tomer she says to him as follows. Did not God already command There's left out a few words there. What does it mean that God already not command? What it means, as Rashi points out, Did not God already command us command you to destroy all the other nations meaning what she's saying to him this has already been commanded this is something we already have to do let's go and do it the way the the, the Radak reads it is as if she's spoken to him a little bit already and this is the middle of the sentence as if like did I tell you this? don't you know this already? did not God already command this? So God actually commands him, Lech, Umashachta, you should draw out, you should draw to the Har Tavor, to a place called Har Tavor, which we'll explain where that is in a moment. And you should take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zvulun. Why them? And where is Har Tavor? So Har Tavor is at an interesting sort of cross point. Har Tavor sits on the border of Zvulun and Yisachar. Zvulun and Yisachar, and perhaps very, very close to the border of Naphtali. It's almost like a three-corner point uh, border, this Har Tavor, in the regions of Har Tavor. So she says to him, take these men, 10,000 men, to Har Tavor, and these men should come from Naphtali and Zvulun. Lama Dafka, why specifically Naphtali and Zvulun? So the Dasovram offers essentially two approaches. One simply from a historical perspective. Historical perspective meaning that essentially what Yahushua had set up was that the tribes themselves would deal with their own problems. Meaning that they would have to deal with local adversaries and local enemies. And then whoever could join up would join up later on. But essentially it was a localized situation that each individual tribe would have to deal with. Separately, Das Sofran offers the possibility that if in fact... He is in Kedesh Naphtali, in this place well to the north, and that they're going to do battle at Har Tavor. So to offer other tribes from the south or other tribes from the east would be very obvious to the enemy. And it would become obvious and known to them that they were gathering in this location because they were passing through the territories where Yavim would be or where Sisra would be. So from a strategic perspective, the ability to gather this community of people together to fight the battle makes more sense if it's from local populations. There's less movement involved. Either way, she says to him, let's go. It's time to do this. And she continues. Umashachti elechel nachal kishon as sisra sartzavayavin. 
She says, and I will draw to you, or she's basically prophesying that I know that once you get there, once you're there, that Sisera and his people will gather to Nachal Kishon. The eastern edge of Nachal Kishon is in the valley to the south, to the south, to the slight southwest of Hartavor. So coming down the mountain, you would be coming down into the Nachal Kishon. And Nachal Kishon, as we mentioned, leads out towards the area where they were before, um, which was the Haroshes Hagoyim. So she says, it's going to happen there. And then if you go and you start, then they're going to draw to that location. And speaking, essentially, in the voice of God, per se, with respect to her prophecy, she says, if you go there, and if you're there, then sister's going to come, and you're going to win. No question about it, you're going to win. Interesting point now comes up in the text. Setting up in the next two verses... Barak responds to Devorah, and then Devorah responds to Barak. It's a very fascinating conversation. Barak sends back, If you go with me, then I will go. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going. What does that mean? If you go, I go. If you don't go, I don't go. Why not? So that so from offers the possibility here that Barak feels that he requires her prophetic abilities and her presence as a person in the course of the war to direct him, to perhaps lead, but perhaps simply from a from a perspective of strategy and military to engender confidence in these 10,000 individuals who it seems for this period, a long period of time, were afraid of Sisera and his forces. Go with me or we don't go. So she responds in verse 9, okay, I'll go. However, Ephes, you should know. You will not get the credit and the glory on this path and in this way and in this battle that you so probably richly deserve. Because into the hands of a woman will God give Sisra. That could be taken one of two ways. One way, way number one, is into my hands by virtue of the fact that I'm going so then Sisra, or more generally his army, will be given over to us and I will get credit for it. Or perhaps she's again offering a prophecy that he will fall in the future into the hands of a woman and she will get the credit, that being Ya'el. And Devorah goes. So it seems that Barak has no problem. He's okay with this. He seems to be humble enough to handle this. And it seems to be perhaps what he intended in the first place. That he was not interested perhaps in his own credit and his own... Uh, aggrandizement, his own glory, but rather with respect to the victory in the battle. At the same time, perhaps, Devorah was looking to set Barak up for the future, again, purely from a strategic perspective, that if he leads the Jewish people to victory here against Yavin, against Sisra, so then he, his profile is raised as a general for the Jewish people, as a leader, 
perhaps she's trying to set up something where he then takes on a much larger role. So Barak gathers the men from Zulun and Naftali to Ketcha. He gets 10,000 people together and then Dvor goes with him. Parenthetically here, the next verse tells us about a group of people who are significant, but their significance is not obvious in the moment, but rather will become very important later. So it's another sense of foreshadowing that's going on in the story, and it deals with specifically the family of Yisro. The family of Yisro, the Hever Hakeni, the family of Yisro, one of the families of the children of Yisro, that had sat in the region of Yehuda near Yericho, and it appears that a portion of them had moved up to the north. And now they're in this region where this battle is about to take place, but they are somewhat removed from the actual specific location where the battle is going to take place, which would seem, again, by way of introduction and parenthetically, unnecessary to our story, but plays a role as it continues. A chever, a group, a, a portion, a family, separated from the group, from from the family of the Chotein Moshe, Chova, the other one of the other names for Yisro. Ad Asher So they're in an area called Elon Sa'ananim. Elon Sa'ananim. is in an area near where Hartavor is and it seems to be in the direction perhaps perhaps to the east of Kedesh well to the north to the east of Kedesh and now the war it was told to Sisra became known to Sisra that Barak and his people, or Barak himself, who is emblematic and, simple, and symbolic of his entire army, have gone to this place, Har Tavor. And Sisra gathers in the same way that Barak gathered his people, Sisra gathers his people, 900 chariots, and all of his people, Mecharoshes Hagoyim, from the place Haroshes Hagoyim all the way to the west, El Nachal Kishon, to the point and Nachal Kishon near Hartavor. And now we're about to get to the battle. I'll tell you in the battle, in the discussion here in our chapter, and we'll simply stick to the text as it has it here, we get very little of the specific details as to what exactly happens in the war. We get much more detail in the coming chapter in Shiraz Devorah. And each one, four to five and five to four, in terms of chapters, add details to the other that fully layer out the story. Perhaps tomorrow when we get to it, we'll find out all the details of the story as to how the war takes place. So now the moment has arrived. Vatoman Devorah El Barak. Devorah speaks to Barak. Kum, rise. This is the day that God has given Sisra to you. Wait no longer. Do not take any more time. Now is the moment. Does not God go before you? Again, the similar language to earlier, but here what Tavara is simply pointing out is this is in your hands. I'm, I'm the Neviah. 
I'm telling you, this is the day, and I'm telling you that just like in past times that God is with you, God is with you here. The Yerid Barak Mehar Tavur, Basera Salafim Ish Acharav. Barak comes down the mountain with 10,000 men following him. Vayoham Adonai Es Sisra, Veskol Harecha, Veskol Amachan Elefikherav Lifne Barak. And God bamboozles and discombobulates, confuses Sisra and his chariots and his entire camp before the sword of Barak. That is to say, that essentially that they are surprised in a certain manner, but it's not surprised in the same manner that we had with uh, Yehoshua, but they're surprised in some way they, they, they can't get themselves together and they get overwhelmed and essentially destroyed very quickly. Sisra comes down from his chariot and he flees on foot. We're going to assume that he flees in a direction away from the direction everyone else is going, which we're about to hear about. Barak and his people chase, pursue after the chariots in the entire camp to the location of Haroshes Hagoyim. We mentioned Haroshes Hagoyim to the west, all the way west near Akko, near Haifa. Nobody is left over, all are killed. And if Sister's running away, you'd have to assume he's not running that way, he's running in a different direction. And here we get the rest of the story. Sisra runs to on foot to the tent of Yael, who is of that tribe, of the family of Chotin Moshe of Yisrael. Because there is some sort of a peace agreement, or some sort of a peace between the Chever Hakeni and the king of Chatzor. So he figures, oh, it's safe. If that's the Caney tribe, I'm on home base, and no one's going to get me, no one's going to be able to stop me, no one's going to be able to hurt me. And Yael sees him coming. So what does she do? She wants to make sure that she gets him, right? Make sure that he that he comes to her, to her tent. But take the Yael across Sisra. Yael goes out to Sisra. Tomer love. Surah Adoni, Surah Elayal Tira. Come towards me. Go, come off the path. Come toward me. Don't be afraid. Meaning... Sister's running, he's looking for a place to go, he's looking for a place to hide. She sees him, she needs to grab him, she needs to get him in. And he turns off the road, turns off the path, into her tent. She covers him up. Covering him up could be from, uh, from cold, from fatigue, simply covering up to hide him. But it doesn't say, it doesn't say similar language to Rachav, it just simply says that she covers him with some sort of a cover. And now we get to the heart of the matter where Yael is set to kill Sisra. And it sets up as follows. He asks for a drink. She gives him something else to drink. He falls asleep, it seems. And then she stabs him in the head with the spike of the tent. Give me something to drink some water to drink as I am thirsty. Uh, he's been running, he's tired, he's been being chased after, he's being pursued for his life. She gives him milk. Rashi writes, why milk? It falls heavy on the body to help it fall asleep. It tires the person out. Uh, maybe this is the source for warm milk 
for somebody who wakes up in the middle of the night to help them go back to sleep. Well, perhaps. He says another thing to him. Maybe you should stand outside. A person comes and comes to the tent looking for me and asks, is there a man here? Is there a man that doesn't belong here? Someone you, who, who you've seen who, does, who stands out? And you'll say no. And that'll be enough. Meaning, if you're the only one there and you're, only, and, and, and you're female, so the men are not going to come into the tent to be around you. So perhaps Sister knows something about the Jewish soldier that he wouldn't go into the tent of a woman who, uh, who perhaps was alone. Perhaps that's the case. At the same time, perhaps no one would go in anyway. And she says, no, they're not, and no one's here, there's no one here, that they would continue on. And it seems, in the interim before the next verse, that perhaps she does go and do something of that nature, and that she leaves him alone, under this covering. She's covered him now twice. And that something goes on here. She leaves, she's going to get her weapon, and he is not in any longer, it's clear from the text, he's no longer in a position or in physical state to battle and to fight back. Yael takes up the spike of the tent. The spike of a tent would be a very short, very sharp object to use. She takes a hammer of some sort in her other hand. So now she has two items. He's clearly not in a position to see that she has them. And now, if you can imagine, she's sort of sneaking up on him. Very, very quietly. Very quietly, but certainly in the sense of surprise, but very quietly. And she stabs the the stake into his forehead, uh, the temple area of his what side of his head, and then she hit him so hard in the side of the head that it impaled him into the ground. And he was asleep, very tired and asleep, and now he's dead. Barak chases after Sisra, but so Yael now leaves the tent once again. She's standing outside as Barak is arriving onto the scene. But Tomelo, she says to him, she seems to know who he is. Go in and see the man you were chasing after, the man you desire, the man you're wanting. He comes in, he comes into the tent, and he sees Sisra dead on the ground and the spike in his head. God himself puts down the rest of Yavin Melakinan before the Jewish people. That is to say that they don't kill everybody, but rather they put them down. They, they, they stem the rebellion, they stem the tide of this onslaught, and they stop what has been going on for 20 years. And the Jewish people are strongly fighting against, their hand is strong, they become the power against, until the point until the point when they are able to put down essentially an end anything that remotely relates to Yavin Melech
It doesn't say that they killed him. It doesn't say that they killed everybody. But essentially were able to stop and destroy that which he represented and that which he was the king of. Continue tomorrow with chapter 5, Shiraz Devorah, the Song of Devorah.